Section 21 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 6. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 21. Russia conquered by the Tartar hordes, Alexander Nevsky saves the remnant of his people, A.D. 1224-1262, by Alfred Rambod. Russia was for centuries the chief power of the Slavic race. On its plains and amid the neighboring lands, they established a civilization and went through a development not unlike those which transformed Western Europe during the Middle Ages. Slavonia, like Gaul, had received Roman civilization and Christianity from the south. The Northmen had brought her an organization which recalls that of the Germans. And under Yaroslav, 1016-1054, like the West under Charlemagne, she had enjoyed a certain semblance of unity, while she was afterward dismembered and divided, like France, in feudal times. The Tartars seem to have been a tribe of the great Mongol race. They conquered northern China and central Asia, and after 40 years of struggle were united with other Mongol tribes into one nation by Genghis Khan. His lieutenants subdued a multitude of Turkish peoples, passed the Caspian Sea by its southern shore, invaded Georgia and the Caucasus, and entered upon the southern steppes of Russia, where they came in contact with the Polovsi, also a Mongol race, the hereditary enemies of the Russians proper. This summary by the distinguished French academician M. Rambaud, our leading authority in Russian history with its related studies, presents with sufficient clearness the character and tendency of Russia in the 13th century, when she was invaded and subjugated by Asiatic hordes. The Polovsi asked the Christian princes for help against the Mongols and Turks, who were their brothers by a common origin. They have taken our country, said they to the descendants of St. Vladimir. Tomorrow they will take yours. Tsitslav the Bold, then Prince of Galich, persuaded all the dynasties of southern Russia to take up arms against the Tartars. His nephew Daniel, Prince of Volhynia, Tsitslav Romanovich, Grand Prince of Kiev, Oleg of Kursk, Tsitslav of Chernigov, Vladimir of Smolensk, and Zevolod, for a short time Prince of Novgorod, responded to his appeal. To cement his alliance with the Russians, Basti, Khan of the Polovsi, embraced orthodoxy. The Russian army had already arrived on the lower Dnieper when the Tartar ambassadors made their appearance. We have come by God's command against our slaves and grooms, the accursed Polovsi. Be at peace with us. We have no quarrel with you. The Russians, with the promptitude and thoughtlessness that characterized the men of that time, put the ambassadors to death. They then went farther into the steppe and encountered the Asiatic hordes on the Kalka, a small river running into the Sea of Azov. The Russian chivalry on this memorable day showed the same disordered and the same ill-advised eagerness as the French chivalry at the opening of the English wars. Tsitslav the Bold, Daniel of Galich, and Oleg of Kursk were the first to rush into the midst of the infidels, without waiting for the princes of Kiev, and even without giving them warning, in order to gain for themselves the honors of victory. In the middle of the combat, the Polovsi were seized with a panic and fell back on the Russian ranks, thus throwing them into disorder. 
the rout became general, and the leaders spurred on their steeds in hopes of reaching the Dnieper. Six princes and seventy of the chief boyars, or voyevodes, remained on the field of battle. It was the Crecy and Poitiers of the Russian chivalry. Hardly a tenth of the army escaped. The Kievians alone left ten thousand dead. The Grand Prince of Kiev, however, Tsitslav Romanovich, still occupied a fortified camp on the banks of the Kalka. Abandoned by the rest of the army, he tried to defend himself. The Tartars offered to make terms. He might retire on payment of a ransom for himself and his drugina. He capitulated, and the conditions were broken. His guard was massacred, and he and his two sons-in-law were stifled under planks. The Tartars held their festival over the inanimate bodies, 1224. After this thunderbolt, which struck terror into the whole of Russia, the Tartars paused and returned to the east. Nothing more was heard of them. Thirteen years passed, during which the princes reverted to their perpetual discords. Those in the northeast had given no help to the Russians of the Dnieper. Perhaps the Grand Prince George II of Suzdal may have rejoiced over the humiliation of the Kievians and Galicians. The Mongols were forgotten. The chronicles, however, are filled with fatal presages. In the midst of scarcity, famine, and pestilence, of incendiaries in the towns and calamities of all sorts, they remark on the comet of 1224, the earthquake and eclipse of the sun of 1230. The Tartars were busy finishing the conquest of China, but presently one of the sons of Genghis, Ugadai, sent his nephew Batu to the west. As the reflux of the Polofsi had announced the invasion of 1224, that of the Saxon nomads, related to the Kyrgyz who took refuge on the lands of the Bulgarians of the Volga, warned men of a new eruption of the Tartars and indicated its direction. It was no longer South Russia, but Sazdalian Russia, that was threatened. In 1237, Batu conquered the great city, capital of the half-civilized Bulgars, who were, like the Polovsi, ancient enemies of Russia, and who were to be included in her ruin. Bulgaria was given up to the flames, and her inhabitants were put to the sword. The Tartars next plunged into the deep forests of the Volga, and sent a sorcerer and two officers as envoys to the princes of Ryazan. The three princes of Ryazan, those of Pransk, Kolomna, Moscow, and Murom, advanced to meet them. If you want peace, said the Tartars, give us the tenth of your goods. When we are dead, replied the Russian princes, you can have the whole. Though abandoned by the princes of Chernigov and the Grand Prince George II, of whom they had implored help, the dynasty of Ryazan accepted the unequal struggle. They were completely crushed. Nearly all their princes remained on the field of battle. Legend has embellished their fall. It is told how Feodor preferred to die rather than see his young wife, Euphrasia, the spoil of Batu, and how, on learning his fate, she threw herself and her son from the window of the Terem. Oleg the Handsome, found still alive on the battlefield, repelled the caresses, the attention, and religion of the Khan, and was cut in pieces. Ryazan was immediately taken by assault, sacked, and burned. All the towns of the principality suffered the same fate. It was now the turn of the Grand Prince, for the Russia of the Northeast had not even the honor of falling in a great battle like the Russia of the Southwest, united for once against the common enemy. The Susdalian army, commanded by a son of George II, was beaten on the day of Kolomna on the Oka. The Tartars burned Moscow, then besieged Vladimir, the royal city which George II had abandoned to seek for help in the north. 
His two sons were charged with the defense of the capital. Princes and boyars, feeling there was no alternative but death or servitude, prepared to die. The princesses and all the nobles prayed Bishop Metrophanes to give them the tonsure, and when the Tartars rushed into the town by all its gates, the vanquished retired into the cathedral, where they perished, men and women, in a general conflagration. Suzdal, Rostov, Yuroslavl, fourteen towns and a multitude of villages in the Grand Principality were also given over to the flames, 1238. The Tartars then went to seek the Grand Prince, who was encamped on the Sit, almost on the frontier of the possessions of Novgorod. George II could neither avenge his people nor his family. After the battle, the Bishop of Rostov found his headless corpse. His nephew, Vasilko, who was taken prisoner, was stabbed for refusing to serve Batu. The immense Tartar army, after having sacked Tver, took Torjuk. There, the Russian heads fell beneath the sword of the Tartars as grass beneath the scythe. The territory of Novgorod was invaded. The Great Republic trembled, but the deep forests and the swollen rivers delayed Batu. The invading flood reached the cross of Ignatius, about 50 miles from Novgorod, then returned to the southeast. On the way, the small town of Kozelsk, near Kaluga, checked the Tartars for so long and inflicted on them so much loss that it was called by them the Wicked Town. Its population was exterminated, and the Prince Vasily, still a child, was drowned in blood. The two following years, 1239 to 1240, were spent by the Tartars in ravaging southern Russia. They burned Pereyaslav and Chernigov, defended with desperation by its princes. Next, Mangu, grandson of Genghis Khan, marched against the famous town of Kiev, whose name resounded through the east and in the books of the Arab writers. From the left bank of the Dnieper, the barbarian admired the great city on the heights of the right bank, towering over the wide river with her white walls and towers adorned by Byzantine artists, and innumerable churches with cupolas of gold and silver. Mangu proposed capitulation to the Kievians, the fate of Ryazan, of Chernigov, of Vladimir, the capitals of powerful states, announced to them the lot that awaited them in case of refusal, yet the Kievians dared to massacre the envoys of the Khan. Michael, their grand prince, fled. His rival, Daniel of Galich, did not care to remain. On hearing the report of Mangu, Batu came to assault Kiev with the bulk of his army. The grinding of the wooden chariots, the bellowings of the buffaloes, the cries of the camels, the neighing of the horses, the howlings of the Tartars rendered it impossible, says the analyst, to hear your own voice in the town. The Tartars assailed the Polish gate and knocked down the walls with a battering ram. The Kievians, supported by the brave Dmitri, a Galician boyar, defended the fallen ramparts till the end of the day, then retreated to the church of the Dime, which they surrounded by a palisade. The last defenders of Kiev found themselves grouped around the tomb of Yaroslav. Next day they perished. The Khan gave the boyar his life, but the mother of Russian cities was sacked. The pillage was most terrible. Even the tombs were not respected. All that remains of the church of the Dime is a few fragments of mosaic in the museum at Kiev. St. Sophia and the monastery of the catacombs were delivered up to be plundered, 1240. Volinia and Galicia still remained, but their princes could not defend them, and Russia found herself with the exception of Novgorod and the northwest country, under the Tartar yoke. The princes had fled or were dead. Hundreds of thousands of Russians were dragged into captivity. Men saw the wives of boyars, who had never known work, 
who a short time ago had been clothed in rich garments, adorned with jewels and collars of gold, surrounded with slaves, now reduced to be themselves the slaves of barbarians and their wives, turning the wheel of the mill and preparing their coarse food. If we look for the causes which rendered the defeat of the brave Russian nation so complete, we may, with Karamsin, indicate the following. 1. Though the Tartars were not more advanced from a military point of view than the Russians, who had made war in Greece and in the West against the most warlike and civilized people of Europe, yet they had an enormous superiority of numbers. Batu probably had with him 500,000 warriors. 2. This immense army moved like one man. It could successively annihilate the Druginas of the princes or the militia of the towns, which only presented themselves successively to its blows. The Tartars had found Russia divided against herself. 3. Even though Russia had wished to form a confederation, the sudden eruptions of an army entirely composed of horsemen did not leave her time. 4. In the tribes ruled by Batu, every man was a soldier. In Russia, the nobles and citizens alone bore arms. The peasants, who formed the bulk of the population, allowed themselves to be stabbed or bound without resistance. 5. It was not by a weak nation that Russia was conquered. The Tartar Mongols, under Genghis Khan, had filled the east with the glory of their name and subdued nearly all Asia. They arrived, proud of their exploits, animated by the recollection of a hundred victories, and reinforced by numerous peoples whom they had vanquished, and hurried with them to the west. When the princes of Galich, of Volhynia, and of Kiev arrived as fugitives in Poland and Hungary, Europe was terror-stricken. The Pope, whose support had been claimed by the Prince of Galich, summoned Christendom to arms. Louis IX prepared for a crusade. Frederick II, as emperor, wrote to the sovereigns of the West, This is the moment to open the eyes of body and soul, now that the brave princes on whom we reckoned are dead or in slavery. The Tartars invaded Hungary, gave battle to the Poles and Lignitz in Silesia, had their progress a long while arrested by the courageous defense of Olmutz in Moravia, by the Czech voivode Yaroslav, and stopped finally, learning that a large army, commanded by the King of Bohemia and the Dukes of Austria and Carinthia, was approaching. The news of the death of Octai, second emperor of all the Tartars, in China, recalled Batu from the west, and during the long march from Germany, his army necessarily diminished in number. The Tartars were no longer in the vast plains of Asia and Eastern Europe, but in a broken hilly country, bristling with fortresses, defended by a population more dense and a chivalry more numerous than those in Russia. To sum up, all the fury of the Mongol tempest spent itself on the Slavonic race. It was the Russians who fought at the Kalka, at Kolomna, at the Sit, the Poles and Silesians at Leibniz, the Bohemians and Moravians at Olmutz. The Germans suffered nothing from the invasion of the Mongols but the fear of it. It exhausted itself principally on those plains of Russia which seem a continuation of the steppes of Asia. Only in Russian history did the invasion produce great results. Batu built on one of the arms of the lower Volga a city called Sarai, the castle, which became the capital of a powerful Tartar empire, the Golden Horde, extending from the Ural and Caspian to the mouth of the Danube. The Golden Horde was formed not only of Tartar Mongols or Nogais, who even now survive in the northern Crimea, but particularly of the remains of ancient nomads, such as the Patsanaks and Polovsi, whose descendants seem to be the present Kalmuks and Bashkirs, 
of Turkish tribes tending to become sedentary, like the Tartars of Astrakhan in the present day, and of the Finnish populations already established in the country and which mixed with the invaders. Oktai, Kaluk, and Mangu, the first three successors of Genghis Khan, elected by all the Mongol princes, took the title of Great Khans, and the Golden Horde recognized their authority, but under his fourth successor, Kublai, who usurped the throne and established himself in China, this bond of vassalage was broken. The Golden Horde became an independent state, 1260. United and powerful under the terrible Batu, who died in 1255, it fell to pieces under his successors, but in the 14th century, the Khan Uzbek reunited it anew and gave the Horde a second period of prosperity. The Tartars, who were pagans when they entered Russia, embraced, about 1272, the faith of Islam and became its most formidable apostles. Meanwhile, Yaroslav, brother of the Grand Prince George II, was his successor in Suzdal. Yaroslav, 1238-1246, found his inheritance in the most deplorable condition. The towns and villages were burned, the country and roads covered with unburied corpses. The survivors hid themselves in the woods. He recalled the fugitives and began to rebuild. Batu, who had completed the devastation of South Russia, summoned Yaroslav to do him homage at Sarai on the Volga. Yaroslav was received there with distinction. Batu confirmed his title of Grand Prince, but invited him to go in person to the great Khan, supreme chief of the Mongol nation, who lived on the banks of the river Sakhalian or Amur. To do this was to cross the whole of Russia and Asia. Yaroslav bent his knees to the new master of the world, Oktai, succeeded in refuting the accusations brought against him by a Russian boyar, and obtained a new confirmation of his title. On his return, he died in the desert of exhaustion, and his faithful servants brought his body back to Vladimir. His son Andrew succeeded him in Suzdal, 1246-1252. His other son, Alexander, reigned at Novgorod the Great. Alexander was as brave as he was intelligent. He was the hero of the North, and yet he forced himself to accept the necessary humiliations of his terrible situation. In his youth, we see him fighting with all the enemies of Novgorod, Livonian Knights and Chudes, Swedes and Finns. The Novgorodians found themselves at issue with the Scandinavians on the subject of their possessions on the Neva and the Gulf of Finland. As they had helped the natives to resist the Latin faith, King John obtained the promise of Gregory IX that a crusade, with plenary indulgences, should be preached against the great republic and her protégés, the pagans of the Baltic. His son-in-law, Berger, with an army of Scandinavians, Finns, and Western Crusaders, took the command of the forces and sent word to the Prince of Novgorod, Defend yourself if you can, know that I am already in your provinces. The Russians on their side, feeling they were fighting for orthodoxy, opposed the Latin crusade with a Greek one. Alexander humbled himself in St. Sophia, received the benediction of the Archbishop Spiridion, and addressed an energetic harangue to his warriors. He had no time to await reinforcements from Suzdal. He attacked the Swedish camp, which was situated on the Ajora, one of the southern affluents of the Neva, which has given its name to Ingria. Alexander won a brilliant victory, which gained him his surname of Nevsky, and the honor of becoming, under Peter the Great, the second conqueror of the Swedes, one of the patrons of St. Petersburg. 
By the orders of his great successor, his bones repose in the monastery of Alexander Nevsky. The Battle of the Neva was preserved in a dramatic legend. An Ingrian chief told Alexander how, in the eve of the combat, he had seen a mysterious bark, manned by two warriors with shining brows, glide through the night. They were Boris and Gleb, who came to the rescue of their young kinsmen. Other accounts have preserved to us the individual exploits of the Russian heroes. Gabriel, Skyloff of Novgorod, James of Polotsk, Sabas, who threw down the tent of Berger, and Alexander Nevsky himself, who with a stroke of the lance imprinted his seal on his face, 1240. Notwithstanding the triumph of such a service, Alexander and the Novgorodians could not agree. A short time after, he retired to Pereyaslavl Zalieski. The proud Republicans soon had reason to regret the exile of this second Camillus. The Order of the Swordbearers, the indefatigable enemy of orthodoxy, took Skoff, their ally. The Germans imposed tribute on the Vogens, vassals of Novgorod, constructed the fortress of Kopori on her territory of the Neva, took the Russian town of Tesov in Estonia, and pillaged the merchants of Novgorod within 17 miles of their ramparts. During this time, the Chudes and the Lithuanians captured the peasants and the cattle of the citizens. At last, Alexander allowed himself to be touched by the prayers of the archbishop and the people, assembled an army, expelled the Germans from Kopari, and next from Skoff, hanged as traitors the captive Vogens and Chudes, and put to death six knights who fell into his hands. This war between the two races and two religions was cruel and pitiless. The rights of nations were hardly recognized. More than once, Germans and Russians slew the ambassadors of the other side. Alexander Nevsky finally gave battle to the Livonian knights on the ice of Lake Pipus, killed 400 of them, took 50 prisoners, and exterminated a multitude of chuds. Such was the Battle of the Ice, 1242. He returned in triumph to Novgorod, dragging with him his prisoners in armor of iron. The Grand Master expected to see Alexander at the gates of Riga, and implored help of Denmark. The Prince of Novgorod, satisfied with having delivered Skoff, concluded peace, recovered certain districts, and consented to the exchange of prisoners. At this time, Innocent IV, deceived by false information, addressed a bull to Alexander as a devoted son of the church, assuring him that his father, Yaroslav, while dying among the horde, had desired to submit himself to the throne of St. Peter. Two cardinals brought him this letter from the Pope, 1251. It is this hero of the Neva and Lake Pipus, this vanquisher of the Scandinavians and Livonian knights, that we are presently to see groveling at the feet of a barbarian. Alexander Nevsky had understood that, in presence of this immense and brutal force of the Mongols, all resistance was madness, all pride ruin. To brave them was to complete the overthrow of Russia. His conduct may not have been chivalrous, but it was wise and humane. Alexander disdained to play the hero at the expense of his people, like his brother Andrew of Susdal, who was immediately obliged to fly, abandoning his country to the vengeance of the Tartars. The Prince of Novgorod was the only prince in Russia who had kept his independence, but he knew Batu's hands could extend as far as the Ilmen. God has subjected many peoples to me, wrote the barbarian to him. Will you alone refuse to recognize my power? If you wish to keep your land, come to me. You will see the splendor and the glory of my sway. Then Alexander went to Sarai with his brother Andrew, 
who disputed the grand principality of Vladimir with his uncle Sviatoslav. Batu declared that fame had not exaggerated the merit of Alexander, that he far excelled the common run of Russian princes. He enjoined the two brothers to show themselves like their father Yaroslav at the Great Horde. They returned from it in 1257. Kiak had confirmed the one in the possession of Vladimir and the other in that of Novgorod, adding to it all South Russia and Kiev. The year 1260 put the patience of Alexander and his politic obedience to the Tartars to the proof. Ulavchi, to whom the Khan Burkai had confided the affairs of Russia, demanded that Novgorod should submit to the census and pay tribute. It was the hero of the Neva that was charged with the humiliating and dangerous mission of persuading Novgorod. When the Posadnik uttered in the Vetch the doctrine that it was necessary to submit to the strongest, the people raised a terrible cry and murdered the Posadnik. Vasily himself, the son of Alexander, declared against a father who brought servitude to freemen and retired to the Scovians. It needed a soul of iron temper to resist the universal disapprobation and counsel the Novgorodians to the commission of the cowardly though necessary act. Alexander arrested his son and punished the boyars who had led him into the revolt with death or mutilation. The Vetch had decided to refuse the tribute and send back the Mongol ambassadors with presents. However, on the rumor of the approach of the Tartars, they repented, and Alexander could announce to the enemy that Novgorod submitted to the census. But when they saw the officers of the Khan at work, the population revolted again, and the prince was obliged to keep guard on the officers night and day. In vain, the boyars advised the citizens to give in. Assembled around St. Sophia, the people declared they would die for liberty and honor. Alexander then threatened to quit the city with his men and abandoned it to the vengeance of the Khan. This menace conquered the pride of the Novgorodians. The Mongols and their agents might go, register in hand, from house to house in the humiliated and silent city to make the list of the inhabitants. The boyars, says Corubson, might yet be vain of their rank and their riches, but the simple citizens had lost with their national honor their most precious possession. 1260. In Suzdal, also, Alexander found himself in the presence of insolent victors and exasperated subjects. In 1262, the inhabitants of Vladimir, of Suzdal, of Rostov, rose against the collectors of the Tartar impost. The people of Yaroslavl slew a renegade named Zosimus, a former monk, who had become a Moslem fanatic. Terrible reprisals were sure to follow. Alexander set out with presents for the horde at the risk of leaving his head there. He had likewise to excuse himself for having refused a body of auxiliary Russians to the Mongols, wishing at least to spare the blood and religious scruples of his subjects. It is a remarkable fact that over the most profound humiliations of the Russian nationality, the contemporary history always throws a ray of glory. At the moment that Alexander went to prostrate himself at Sarai, the Suzdalian army, united to that of Novgorod and commanded by his son Dmitri, defeated the Livonian knights and took Dorpat by assault. The Khan Burkai gave Alexander a kind greeting, accepted his explanations, dispensed with the promised contingent, but kept him for a year near his court. The health of Alexander broke down. He died on his return before reaching Vladimir. When the news arrived at his capital, the metropolitan Cyril, who was finishing the liturgy, turned toward the faithful and said, Learn, my dear children, that the son of Russia is set, is dead. We are lost, cried the people, breaking forth into sobs. Alexander, 
By this policy of resignation, which his chivalrous heroism does not permit us to despise, had secured some repose for exhausted Russia. By his victories over his enemies of the West, he had given her some glory, and hindered her from despairing under the most crushing tyranny, material and moral, which a European people had ever suffered. End of section 21